The research shows that the majority of what participants learn and take away from any online course is not what they learn from the trainer, the presenter, the lecturer. It's what they hear from their peers. When we don't create space for that, it's particularly in that reflecting space where people are sharing and discussing and reflecting, we all could have had that same experience, a simulation game, a visualization, whatever it was. Each one of us will take away something completely different because of our background life experience that we have coming into this meeting. And if we do our learners a disservice and we limit the amount they can learn, if we don't create space for those reflections, if we don't create space for that sharing and learning and growing together. Successful brands are rooted in purpose and driven by the potential to make a positive impact on their customers. Welcome to The Pursuit of Purpose with Amy Austin. Each week, Amy brings you practical advice to embrace the power of purpose in all aspects of your business and transform it into the central storyline for your branding and marketing strategies. Welcome to today's Pursuit of Purpose. My guest today is Romy Alexandra. Romy and I met through a LinkedIn program that we've both been involved in for the last several months. And over the course of that time, I've become really interested in what it is that she provides to her clients. And so Romy, can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by experiential learning? Sure, thanks so much, Amy. It's wonderful to be here with you today. This term is so often thrown around. Right now, everyone, everyone across all different industries, everything is experiential, whether it's marketing, whether it's education, it's become a buzzword, which unfortunately has lost a lot of it, the meaning and impact of experiential learning. Now, David Kolb, who basically leveraged many 21st century thought leaders and educators um, and really compiled experiential learning theory into the comprehensive theory that it is today, he says that experiential learning is the process whereby knowledge is created through the transformation of experience. So let me just say that one more time. It's the process whereby knowledge is created through the transformation of experience. The field that I work in is really about, I'm an experiential learning designer and trainer. So it's really about immersing participants into concrete experiences that tap into their emotions and senses and really that catalyzes the learning process, which is about experiencing reflecting, thinking, and acting. And it's a real holistic theory that many people are not aware of when they talk about experiential learning. There is so much more to it than that of how we create experiences that really allow for long-term memory retention and, and make the learning stick over, over a long period of time. I'll just kind of repeat what I he just heard you say to make sure that I, we're on the same page. It's taking a learning opportunity and enhancing it with different means of being able to present the information that needs to be taught or that is being taught so that you're appealing to a variety of different learning styles of the audience that's in the, in the room, whether that be truly a classroom setting or a business meeting or a conference or something like that. You're giving them activities that will, you know, maybe appeal to the visual learner or to the solitary learner or someone who maybe learns better in a group setting. Is that kind of what you're talking about in a way? So much to unpack in there, uh, Amy. A few things. I'd say that 
absolutely, it's a methodology and it's a way to design your programs. And absolutely, there's infinite applications. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the formal education setting or in a conference or business meeting. It's a way of structuring and designing and workshop training that you're meeting, that you're offering where you want, you want people to learn. There are an infinite amount of incredible subject matter experts out in the world. So many people, there's you know much more knowledge than I can even grasp. For me, what I do, it's not so much focused on the what of training people in a certain topic. What I really focus on with experiential learning theory is the how. How do we make sure that you as a subject matter expert can ensure the, the most holistic form of learning and really ensure that your participants will walk away understanding what you want them to. Many people are, are delivering workshops, especially now in the online space, everyone has had to shift to online, but most of those people actually don't understand how we learn. And experiential learning theory is not just a great methodology because it's nice and yes, you can add experiences and fun and immersive um, activities, but there's much more to it in the sense that it follows the patterns in our brain. So it ensures that your participants will actually walk away remembering what you, what you taught them. And most people don't, don't know that. They don't know how, how you learn. And you bring up another great point here, Amy, which is about learning styles. There's a lot of contention about learning styles in this kinesthetic, auditory, visual, et cetera. And I, I had some great talks with some neuroscientists even recently saying, you know, there's actually no evidence behind learning styles. And that's why many people like to just say from the beginning, oh, no, 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 that's, we can't use that. That's not evidence-based. But in the experiential learning theory, you know, David Kolb over 50 years ago, this year, actually exactly as the 50th anniversary, he coined the term learning styles which many people took and kind of ran off with and applied in different ways. He's now actually trying to change the language because people have a very negative connotation about learning styles when what he really meant was learning preferences around that cycle. As I mentioned, experiential learning, you usually have these four modes. You have experiences, you have experiencing, reflecting, thinking, and acting. And each person has preferences around that learning journey and that cycle of where they loved or they feel super comfortable. They could stay there all day. Some people are like, I love the fun activities. Some people love to sit back and observe and reflect on the discussions. Some people are really craving that theoretical input and knowledge or in the acting phase, people love to think about the practicality or the approach of how they're going to put this um, to use in, in their own personal or professional lives. So we, each one of us have a preference in that journey, in that learning cycle, and they're not stagnant. The problem with learning styles is many people say, oh, but this puts people into boxes and categorizes them as, you know, this is what you are. That's not the experiential learning styles that we use based on what David Kolb's theory. It's much more about preferences that can shift and change over time. We want to encourage learning flexibility. We don't want to, as educators, we don't want to push people into a box and say, okay, if you're... You know, if you're an experiencing learner, then we're only going to give you lots of activities and games and experiences. Each one of us needs that holistic cycle to really ensure that learning sinks in and sets in. So we need to, as educators or facilitator, subject matter expert, whoever is delivering content, we really need to make sure that we're creating that holistic environment for all learning styles and all, um, all individuals and learners to really develop their learning flexibility. That's really interesting. The variety is more important or more beneficial to the learner than it is the understanding of a quote unquote learning style that somebody may have may have emerged as being a dominant on an assessment. 
Exactly. We need it all. Because what happens often that I see, you know, is, and maybe you have a similar experience. I see people with excellent information to deliver, whether, you know, I work with so many different people across fields from leadership to emotional intelligence, to human rights work, whatever it is, people want to get their, their information out, but they don't know how to do it. And so if you are uh, intentional about designing a program that has these four modes of the cycle that really flows nicely into each other. You catch all the learners. It doesn't matter. As you said, it's not, it doesn't matter if that one person says, oh, but I just am here for the theory. I just want the content. Okay, great. But you're going to learn it better if you also have those uh, immersive experiences to go along with that content as well and vice versa. So can you talk about each of those four types of of experiential learning or what are, what was the, what did you call them? The, the, mo the modes of the modes. Cycle, yeah. yeah. Can you talk <laughs> about those four? Sure. Yes. Experiential learning theory has many different facets to it. So we already talked about the learning styles. There's also the learning space. There's learning flexibility. And I'd say the foundation is really this experiential learning cycle. And we call it the cycle of learning because it's actually not just like one it's actually even more than a cycle. It's almost a spiral because it, you know, this is, this follows the way that we learn. It follows the patterns in our brain. So when you go outside and you're just informally learning, our brains are also doing this. It sounds maybe a lot more tricky or complicated than it actually is. And once I explain it, I'm sure you'll see it's, it's quite simple. One area is this experiencing part. And this is what I already started to explain. It's very much immersing participants into a concrete experience that taps into their emotions and senses, because that's actually um, what we remember the most. If you think right now, Amy, back to maybe your first day of high school or your first day of university or whatever it is, I guarantee you, and to anyone who's listening, if you think back, I guarantee you, you won't remember the exact content that you learned on that day, but what you will remember are different things triggered by emotions. Anyone who I've met who says, oh, I remember the content I learned on my first day of you know, college, I guarantee if you look deeper, it's because there was some kind of emotion involved, maybe how the, the teacher was making you feel or something that happened with your colleagues. Our memory is so connected with emotions. And unfortunately, that is so often ignored in many learning programs, right? Where there are people like, I'm here to deliver content. Here's what people want to learn. But we have to root it in some kind of experience. And that can look like anything. I mean, it could be a simulation. It, you know, there's so many tools out there. So even maybe I want to give, do something like a visualization. If I was working with you on branding, I might say, okay, close your eyes and imagine the future. What does that, what is that brand? What is it that you want to stand for? What do you want your future clients to say about you? And even just tapping into that before we go into, okay, let's discuss what is that branding? And let's discuss what are some of those key principles of branding we want to take into mind? that will ground them in those emotions, experiences, which will also make it stick and help them, you know, help that learning come alive. So that's really what that experiencing phase is all about. And then we have the reflecting phase where it's really going into this more observation mode, reflecting back. So if we take that same example, right? You close your eyes, you're imagining your future branding, your future clients and what they say about you you really want to tap in and reflect a bit on it. Maybe we have a discussion and say, what did you see? What did you notice? This is more looking at facts, observations, moving less from the emotions, but you know, what comparisons can you make between what you hope your future clients say and what, for example, your past clients already said? And you start to reflect a bit more deeply on what was that experience. And, and that really drives us more deeply into the thinking phase. 
which can look like many different things. That thinking phase is really this, usually often it's more theoretical input. That's where we're usually delivering content, you know, like maybe that's where you would say, Amy, okay, based on what I heard you share and your reflections and what you were hoping for, it sounds like this might be the path forward for your brand. Like, let's talk about these key aspects and why actually these aspects go so well with the research that shows X, Y, Z, you know, there's infinite things. It can be a theoretical input, but also it could be just even continuing that reflection forward in a way that the participants or your attendees or your clients or your, you know, whatever you call them, learners, but really that's where they can draw conclusions and start really conceptualizing. So what just happened? So if I notice that how I want my future clients, what I want my future clients to say about me and what my past clients say, there's a big gap and they really are not aligned. So what can I do about that? What do I want to, is it a behavior I want to change? Is it that my messaging needs to change? Like really starting to draw those conclusions that that really happens in that thinking phase as well, connected with, you know, the theoretical input that can further drive those concrete conclusions. So then that leads the way to the acting phase and the final phase, which this is so often missing from learning programs, whether it's a work, a one-time workshop, whether it's a course that happens over time, people may have different activities, they may reflect on it, and they may have some often great content and information to help support those conclusions. But they're often missing this acting piece, which is really the so what, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to put into practice outside of this session that we are in together? What can you start doing outside of here for yourself? So if I recognize, okay, I learned from that same example, my branding and messaging of what I'm putting out in the world does not represent actually what I want my clients, the direction that I want to move in. There's a real disconnect there. So what? That's that acting piece. Maybe I say, okay, now, Amy, you and I, we're going to work together and we're going to create this action plan on how I'm going to completely transform my messaging. What is that going to look like? Maybe it's step-by-step -step approach. Maybe it's, I'm not even there yet to take action. Maybe I have to give myself a challenge and say, after this workshop we have together or this meeting we have together, I'm going to go out and interview 10 different people and get more feedback on, is this a different messaging that aligns more with what I want? And what do people say about this? And so there's so, I mean, there's infinite things you can do, but it's that acting piece is really about putting your learning into practice. And the beauty of the experiential learning cycle is that it doesn't end there, right? Because once I take that action and I say, you know, I'm thinking to go in this direction with my branding, but I want to use a group to test it with and see what they say and survey them, that becomes a new experience. I'm now going out in the real, real world and talking to different people. And that's a new experience that then I can reflect on. What did I notice that people said? And what did they, you know, did it align with what I hoped they'd say or not about my branding? okay, now what, what uh, generalizations and really concrete concepts I can, I can draw from this that's going to help me then put something new into practice moving forward. So it's really actually more, more of a spiral of many, 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 many of these experiential learning cycles that, that go on. I hope that gave you a good example. I just kind of made that up on the spot. <laughs> no, definitely. The whole time that you were saying that, I was thinking about, okay, I do, I do a lot of what you were what you were talking about with my clients when I'm working with them on defining their brand and understanding what it means and all of that. I right. don't know. I'm not sure that I do enough of the acting part of it, like what you said, that, that, you know, that there is a level of it, but it has me thinking about, could I be 
more intentional with what I with things that I build in to focus on that acting component of the the so what because I could see where that be- gets them more engaged with what it is that they have defined about their brand using that same example but if I'm also you know if I'm attending a conference and I'm learning something new by having a greater focus on that so what so what am I going to do with this information? How am I going to apply it? How am I going to use it to enhance my business if I'm at a professional development conference? It's like it takes you up to that point. And if you don't do that so what part, that acting component of it, why did you even bother doing the first three stages? Exactly. <laughs> you you hit it on the head, Amy. And you're you're not alone there. This is something that I see constantly throughout any even a business meeting, right? We even if we're not direct, you know, presenting content, even a, a, a business meeting, you can you can design in the way around the cycle. And with any presentation, any meeting, anything, I always at the bare minimum, I say, even if you just take the last five minutes. We could do much more in that acting piece, but at the bare minimum, ask each person to put in the chat if we're online or say out loud, what are you, what are they taking away with them from today? What were their big aha insights and what specific tangible actions are they going to take now after this meeting? What make sure that everyone is clear on that? Because I see this in so many webinars, they're direct content, direct content. In a lot of webinars, there's very little experiencing, very little reflecting. There's lots of thinking, you know, so what we end with, okay. And usually it's the presenter sharing their last slide on, okay, great. And people leave, but they will forget. They will forget. And as you said, people say, why did I spend an hour of my time there or two hours of my time or even longer if I don't have something tangible and concrete that I'm going to put into practice? Whatever I do, no matter what kind of format it is, I say, okay, check out with me for a little bit. What's something that you're going to put into practice now after today or a challenge you want to set for yourself or a plan you want to make for yourself? Something that gives that action-oriented next step. If they say it or declare it or write it in the meeting, they're much more likely to actually put it into practice once that Zoom meeting closes. Sure. When you're working with someone whether it be somebody like me or someone who's putting together a webinar program or a maybe even an online course, tell me a little bit about what it is you do when you're working with them so that I can kind of get into, into your brain a little bit in terms of what are you looking for that helps somebody create a much better end product, whether it's you know a talk that they're giving or an educational opportunity, whatever that might be. How do you help them identify what's missing for them and and turn it into what may have been a okay program, but convert it into something that really is very impactful to those people that are going to to benefit from the information that's going to be shared? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I work I work with many different clients. So if I'm working, for example, one on one with a subject matter expert. I have this quite often, you know, right now, everyone has transitioned into the online and many people are, you know, developing their own courses. As as I said, they don't really know the best way that people learn, but they have incredible content to be delivered. 
So what I typically do is work with them. I see their content. I see how they would ideally like to structure their course or their training or the workshop, whatever it is, and see some of that content. So I really bring a decade of experience of how can we make this come alive? What are ex particularly what many subject matter experts struggle with is how do you turn this content into an immersive experience? What is something that they can do instead of just direct content and talking at people? How are we engaging and really working with each other? So I do a lot of presenting different ideas of like, here might be a great experience around this tool. Let's use this reflection method. Let's bring in this content here. I really help them in a way of restructuring and redesigning around the experiential learning cycle in order to, again, cater for all different learning styles in order to ensure brain-based learning and long-term memory retention. And as you said, the most impactful. This is something that I'm personally so called to do because I'm some, one of my top values is learning and growth. I'm someone who loves learning. And unfortunately, I myself have been in way too many terribly boring, fatiguing, exhausting meetings, whether it's in person, online, you name it. And I, can, I, my, I can't learn. Actually, all of us can't learn to our maximum ability if we don't really take these principles and concepts and put them into practice. So what I do is really help the reshaping and restructuring so that by the end of it, you know, my clients can say, wow, I'm not only giving an experiential program, but it's really a holistic learning journey. One, one of the really more difficult things to do is even if you're aware of the experiential learning cycle and you're aware of these different modes, it's quite often a challenge to see how do they flow nicely into each other. And that's something I really, I have to say, I've, I've really spent quite a long time working on that flow, those transitions that by the end, the course, whether it's, you know, a one-time 10-day or two-month course, whatever it is, it's really a holistic learning journey that flows and participants understand that journey and, under, and are really called to engage with that. That's another thing I work a lot with clients on. It's not just about the experiential learning cycle, but all the other elements that go with it. You know, I bring a ton of background in Let's make, let's make it to the maximum, most engaging and connecting ability that we can. We, are, we saw with this pandemic how much we are hardwired for connection and with social distancing, so many individuals, their mental health was struggling. I, I think everyone can relate to that. And actually the number one reason why individuals stay in any online course on any topic, it's not actually because of the, of the course itself, it's the community, it's the connection that is so important. And another thing I often, I, I too often see with, you know, those who are designing and, and facilitating courses is that we lose sight of that community connection piece. We often think we are the sage on the stage that we have information to deliver. And we see our attendees at conference and meetings that they're kind of these empty cups that need to be filled with information. And what I really want to do is encourage more subject matter experts to flip that cup on its head and say, imagine your, your attendee, every attendee you're walking in here has a wealth of experience, background life experience that they can bring into this conversation. And how do we draw out more from participants as well? So it's not a one directional top down approach, but really we are opening the space for sharing and learning together because many people are surprised to find out that the research shows that the majority of what participants learn and take away from any online course is not what they learn from the trainer, the presenter, the lecturer. It's what they hear from their peers. 
when we don't create space for that, it's particularly in that reflecting space where people are sharing and discussing and reflecting, we all could have had that same experience, a simulation game, a visualization, whatever it was, each one of us will take away something completely different because of our background life experience that we have coming into this meeting. And if we do our learners a disservice and we limit the amount they can learn, if we don't create space for those reflections, if we don't create space for that sharing and learning and growing together. And so that's also, I mean, there's so many different pieces that I bring, but that's another thing I really focus on is how are you um, moving from, this is what Paolo Freire called like pedagogy of the oppressed, this top down approach to learning to really making sure it's a community, it's connection, it's an empowering space for learning. That's really interesting. Cause as you were talking about that people are less likely to leave the community that was formed as a part of an online learning experience than they are to just leave because they aren't getting fulfilled from, from content. the content. I have experienced that a few times where I have said to people, well, the course was good, but I really get so much more from the people who are part of the community that was created as part of that. And I hadn't really made that connection like you just described until right now. And, and that's exactly, there's so much truth in that. Absolutely. We use this term connection before content. Because even, even in a one-time workshop, even if you don't, you're not creating you know, consecutive weekly meetings where you really want to cultivate that community connection, even then, connection is still so important for the learning journey. Again, there's this huge focus on content, content, content. But what many people don't realize is that if you don't intentionally design for moments of connection among participants, at the, the closer you can do it at the very start, right? It's connection before content you actually can't get for the most impactful results later on. Because the more that you can create a connecting exercise with participants, with attendees, whether it's put strangers in a breakout room and have them connect and talk about a certain topic or have every single person, if it's a big online meeting, put everything in the chat, you cultivate that connection, which again, relies on what we need for trust, psychological safety. People are more willing later on to open up and, and brainstorm. We see this so much in corporate meetings. Oh my goodness. We jump into a corporate meeting and it's like, okay, we need brainstorm. We need ideas. Let's go. But if there hasn't been a moment to connect with the people in the room, a hundred times you, uh, out of a hundred, you will see that the responses in the brainstorm are not as open. People are not as willing to take those risks to share their ideas vulnerably because they haven't had that connection piece first. They haven't had that initial moment of, okay, I'm here, we're a group, I belong, we connect. Okay, now I'm more willing to take those risks later on. So that connection piece, I'm glad that you that you, you know, tapped into that. It's so important among any kind of workshops we do. That's why we, we use this motto, connection before content, that I first wanna create that environment and space for people to feel safe, connect, Remember, okay, even though I'm, you know, I'm on a workshop, I don't know anyone else here, I'm, you know, by myself, I feel some kind of connection to the topic of the meeting, to the people in this room, and I have been, there's some kind of invitation for me to share authentically before diving into that meat of, of the meeting. It really gives you a reason to, to do the icebreakers. 
Yeah. You know, and, and I think so often we look at icebreakers as like the necessary thing that you're like, oh, I don't want to do another dumb icebreaking activity, (laughs) you know, whatever. And, and it's what you've just said really gives that meaning and, you know, a much more important role to play in the success of what you're going to accomplish through the rest of the course, the meeting, the whatever it is that's following. Absolutely. And many people have this aversion to the word word icebreakers. People hate it now or energizers. They're so over it, but it has to be done intentionally, right? So it makes no point for us to go around the circle at the beginning of the meeting and everyone shares what's your favorite food or your favorite color. If we're not going to be talking about food or colors or whatever, I don't feel more connected to you. In fact, oftentimes I'm like zoning out by the end because, okay, so many people have shared. But if you intentionally design an icebreaker that, as I said, this is what Peter Block and very good colleagues of mine from We and Me, they share that real true connection before content should really do three things. It should one, connect people to each other to connect people to the topic and the purpose of the meeting. So I'm not going to ask you about your favorite food if we're not talking about that, but I could in an interesting way, right? Create some kind of environment. If we're talking about branding, for example, that's so much connected with image, et cetera. I may even, I don't know, this is, I'm just thinking on the top of my head. I may even invite people to share in a breakout room, something about like how they see themselves right now in their life. Something, you know, it's maybe not exactly, I don't want to go deep into the content yet, but I want to prepare them for that content. And why I like even a question like that, although I I probably wouldn't start with like, how do you see yourself with a group of strangers who don't know each other, but you have to, you know, you you have to be intentional about it, but that you want to create an opportunity for vulnerability and authenticity, an opportunity or a choice. Nobody is forced to share What is your deepest, darkest fear that people would say about you that will put people in their panic zone and they won't learn? But if I open up a conversation that's something like, you know, what's something that you've learned about yourself in the past year? Maybe that, maybe that might be a nicer connecting question that, okay, it's, there's a choice there for for me to share openly, authentically, and vulnerably that can connect me with other people. And then I'm saying, okay, maybe your branding exercises on what have you learned about yourself in the past year that you want to infuse into your new branding, right? So that there is still that connection. And okay, now I know why we did this. There's not just for just to do an icebreaker for the sake of doing an icebreaker. Yeah. So it's really about choosing the, the icebreaker that is going to get them started thinking about the topic that's going to be discussed. Mm-hmm. Not just a random idea that came out of nowhere, but something that is more connected in some way to really get them like to just dip the toe in the water of exactly. this is the topic that we're going to talk about. Interesting. Oh, I really like that. Thank you for explaining that a little bit further. That's good stuff. The next thing I wanted to talk about with you a little bit, Romy, is you mentioned earlier that you're really personally drawn to this work. And for me, understanding purpose and what fulfills you is a core piece of what I do with my clients. And it's a core piece of the, for how I kind of discern who I will interview on the show and and such. So can you tell me a little bit about your background or what is it about this work that is so fulfilling to you and kind of drew you into this? Because 
until I met you, I didn't know anyone who did this kind of work. And so I, I am fascinated on how did you find this path? What, what brought you to it? And how did you land on, on this work as being your calling of what you're doing now? Oh, good question. Let's, um, how much time do we have? I'll try to keep <laughs> it really short. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I, I never thought I would get into this space at all. Um, I, as I mentioned, like learning and growth are key top values. And even as when I was very young, I was very, I, I loved learning. I was a book, I was such a book nerd. I'm, I was all about it, but I didn't enjoy I, did, I thought I didn't enjoy learning because I didn't enjoy school, right? I wasn't taught in an experience. I went to some excellent schools um, in the country, but I wasn't taught in a way that was really experiential. It was, again, a lot of direct, formal education, very content-heavy lecturing at, not speaking with. And unfortunately, that's the reality that most students have in school. And the, the, the disservice we do there is that many young people grow up learning thinking they don't like to learn, right? Because of those things. And it's, I'm grateful because I, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in the Republic of Moldova. And actually I, I thought I was actually going to go into the international development space. That's what I studied at, at university. And as I was working in, in rural areas, trying to focus on per, you know, development, personal and professional development of young, of youth and educators and community stakeholders, I realized, okay, I, I have to be somehow this educator. I never would ever call myself an educator, but I had to be because I was delivering programs to professionals on, you know, how to, how, how to focus on community development initiatives or to youth on how um, I started, you know, an internship program. So that had to come along with professional skills training and different things. So I'm really grateful to the Peace Corps because it showed me another way of quote unquote educating people that was really more through activities, through immersive experiences, through, it was in, in a way through experiential learning. And that really opened up so many doors for, for me. I was, I was actually very much focused at the beginning of my training career on human rights work. Um, and so I'm still extremely passionate about human rights work and, and I do incorporate this, but I was charged with a very big task of designing and going all over the country in the Republic of Moldova to deliver workshops on human trafficking prevention. I was in charge of actually how to create workshops that would train all different community stakeholders, educators, as well as youth in methods traffickers use, how to be aware, how to um, protect yourself really, truly life, um, you know, saving information. And I realized not enough was being done by the organizations I saw to make sure that it was engaging, interactive, experiential. Yes, you can be training on an extremely serious topic like human trafficking, but if you are not creating a space for it to be engaging, fun for youth, et cetera, they will not remember it. And that for me was this aha moment of, I need to bring I need to bring the experiential, the engagement. I need to bring a fun atmosphere to whatever I'm training on. And so that really evolved over many years. I, I loved it. I, I never thought I would ever get in this space, but I loved it. I loved hearing even five years after a training I delivered, I'd have people finding me. I don't even know how they find me on social media and saying, I want you to know you won't remember me. I was one student in this classroom of 40 who you came to and you taught us about methods traffickers use. 
five years later, I still remember the information that you shared. And I just almost, I, I saw all the warning signs in, in, a, in a recent job opportunity I was offered. And thanks to you, I didn't take it. And I think my life was saved. If I did nothing else in my life besides that, I know that I, I accomplished my purpose of making an impact in lives of others because I, I helped save one person from trafficking. And I know that, you know, I've had a few of these over, over the years, which has been really helpful. And that really propelled me into this space of, I'm so passionate about ensuring that learning is impactful. It's, it's what you said before, Amy, like, why are, why are you going to spend all your time and effort to create an educational experience if your attendees and participants don't remember it. And so I'm not as much working in the human rights space now over the past 10 years that's evolved into, I went, I went on to focus on leadership development um, for community stakeholders, which went into emotional intelligence work. But what I realized was it didn't matter at the end of the day what I was training on, it's the how. And it's the how that light people up. It's the how that make people feel so connected to those topics, to each other, that continues that investment moving forward. And I absolutely feel I found my purpose in life. I even developed a training two years ago about helping other people how to find their purpose in life, because I feel so grateful every day that I get to do this work. It lights me up knowing that I can help, I can help people learn in whatever topic that can make a true impact in their life. And why, why not tap more into that? Why do we still settle for the status quo of lecturing at when it's not actually effective. And that's what I hope to transform um, moving, continue to transform um, for clients and companies and, uh, you know, all these, all these big institutions that I'm working with now, because yeah, there's infinite applications for experiential learning theory. And, and I'm, I'm grateful to, I, I forgot to mention this, but as I, as I sought to really deepen my understanding in this, I did a certification program in experiential learning theory and also um, combining what I mentioned to you, critical pedagogy, pedagogy of the press with experiential learning theory. And so that's really given me an excellent foundation in this field to, to carry this work moving forward and spread it all over the world. I've, I have literally have worked with every continent, with individuals and organizations across every continent. And it's so beautiful that even with cultural differences, this stands true for everyone because it really follows how we learn and the patterns in our brain. That's really amazing, Romy. Thank you for sharing that because I could see in and could hear in the tone of your voice. I could, because I can see you, we're on a Zoom call. <laughs> I can see the way your expressions came out, but I could also hear it in your voice of how important this work is to you and how passionate you are about it. And that ultimately makes you better at what you do because you are fully engaged with it and and it is fulfilling to you i mean i i can't imagine how it must have felt to have that student come back to you or that person who participated in that training and say i still remember this five years later and i am certain that it that it saved my life because i knew to watch for these for these warning signs mm -hmm. yeah that's amazing thank you for sharing that very much there's so much here that we've covered. If there were, I don't know, one or two things that you would share with someone who is or advise them to incorporate into their next learning opportunity that they're leading, what would you tell them to make sure that they're doing? So many, so many things, but I'll try to just even, even the simplest, smallest 
couple of things I could share is one, ask first before you tell, right? We are so ready to share the information. And we, we again, if participants or attendees are not thinking about it for themselves first critically, but just there to consume content, it won't stick. And so even at the bare basic, if you do nothing else, if you don't even apply experiential learning theory, but you ask first, like, what do you think experiential learning is? What do you think branding is? What comes to mind for you? What would you, you know, what would you like, what do you think are the top principles that we should keep in mind for branding? And you get participants thinking critically, sharing and hearing from each other. Then when you tell them the information that you have, they will be so much more open and receptive to hear it because they'll already have thought. And so really turning your attendees and participants from consumers of information, which they, you know, which is so, oh, so passive to active contributors. I mean, that makes such, that in its own makes such a big difference. And I think the other thing is really, don't forget the experiences. Don't forget the emotions. Don't forget the experiences. That's what any attendee or participant is going to remember later on, the emotions they felt in your workshop. It's one of my favorite quotes of all time is Maya Angelou's, right? People will never remember what you said. People will never remember what you did, but people will always remember how you made them feel. And I encourage everyone, no matter what it is that you're leading a conference, a meeting, a workshop, a training, an online course, don't forget those emotions. Don't forget, like take time to, to really cultivate experiences that participants can get a range of emotions in because that's what will ground them and that's what will remind them. And we focus so much on the content. So one of my, one of my dear friends, she, she taught me this. She's also a trainer and she said, and I love this principle, which is love your content, but love your participants more. And so even if you are so ready to share the content, the content, like really take time to make sure your participants are getting that, those emotional experiences are getting ways to tap in that they're, they're getting a chance to share just as much. It's not just, you know, you sharing your content. So really love your participants and give them those emotional experiences that they need so that the learning sticks. I would just limit to those two, although there's many more I'm sure I could share. <laughs> I'm sure that there are because you've helped me with a number of things when I've reached out to you and said, how do I do this? Or what should I do with this? So I appreciate that very much. So just to wrap this up, Romy, how could my listeners find you if they want to learn more about what you're doing and, and maybe even start engaging in a conversation with you? What, how could they do that? Absolutely. I'm very active on social media. As I said, this is my purpose to get this information as far out there as I can and help transform as many learning uh, programs as I can. So I'm posting almost daily on LinkedIn. You can find me at Romy Alexandra on Instagram, train at training by Romy. I'm also on Facebook, Romy Alexandra, experiential learning trainer. My website is currently in construction, so you won't find much there, but eventually if you want to, you can go to www.romi-alexandra.com as well. Great. And I will put links to all of those things in the show notes so that you can quickly find them there as well. And I will just put a plug in for definitely follow Romy on LinkedIn because she shares some really great actionable 
ideas that you can easily apply after having just read her post. You can go back and say, okay, I'm going to do these things, especially on Tuesdays. She does tip Tuesdays. <laughs> yeah. And, and I've Tuesday, learned so much about using the Zoom platform and features that are there just because she shares that because it enhances the experience that you can have if you're utilizing those tech, those those extra features that many people just don't realize are even there on Zoom or other video platforms like that. So thank you so much for your time today, Romy. I really appreciate it. I know that my listeners are going to get a lot from this conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you, Amy. It was so wonderful and appreciate the opportunity to chat more about this topic, which I love so dearly. <laughs> So the other day, I posted on LinkedIn about my service called the Marketing Director on Call, and I had a person reach out to me and say, hey, I don't know what this is. Can you tell me more about it? So I thought maybe I should tell you about it, too. We're all familiar with a physician calling on another physician to help with a patient, right? That physician they're calling is on call. My on-call service is the same thing. If you are responsible for marketing but have no one to brainstorm ideas with or have marketing responsibilities as quote, other duties as assigned. Or maybe you are a founder or a business owner who is looking to bootstrap as many business functions as possible until you've grown enough to hire a bigger team. Each of these roles may put you in a position to want to talk to an expert in marketing or branding. And you know what? That's me. And that's where the marketing director on call service is valuable. You drive the agenda, we brainstorm and strategize for an hour, working out an action plan, and you leave with clarity and confidence to make it happen. I'm on call for you. Your second opinion is a phone or now a Zoom call away. Check out the link in the show notes for more information about the marketing director on call service and also how to schedule a discovery call to, to find out if it's the right service for you. I look forward to hearing from you. This has been the Pursuit of Purpose podcast presented by Austin Marketing. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcast player. Head over to amyaustinmarketing.com for links and resources mentioned in today's show, as well as ways to subscribe and connect with Amy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>